Welcome back to our third podcast of our Participate in Christ Sermon Series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed every Sunday at 10 a.m. from our YouTube channel. Pat Keep is continuing our series with a sermon titled, Giving. I know I'm not supposed to cross the imaginary fourth wall or whatever it is, but honey, this guy's wife lets him have trophies on the mantle. And their dogs playing poker is back here on the wall. Anyway, we've had, a, <laughs> we've had a box of my trophies that have traveled wherever we've gone since uh, for a really long time. Um, so I think they're probably still in the storage space. Anyway, good morning. I am not Pastor Bruce. Pastor Bruce is away on his anniversary, as Gene said. Um, I'm just happy for a Sunday free of falling snow. So this winter has been has been a challenge, I think, but we live in Minnesota, and winter's winter. Uh, I have noticed it seems to be extremely tough on parents with little kids uh, because you've been prisoner in your houses for long periods of time. We happen to live 10 minutes away from one of our daughters who has three kids, and I can tell you that she's been leaning on her mom in, in ways I couldn't have dreamed of when she was a teenager. But it's gotten so bad that our oldest granddaughter asked when grandma's going to be home sometimes that night. So I think we may have gone over the top. Uh, one of the things that we kind of, we probably messed up as, one of the many things we messed up as parents was that we lived far away from both of our sets of parents. And so they were not frequent visitors to our house when our kids were little. They weren't always close to us to help. But when my parents did visit, I could count on my dad consistently doing two things. At some point in the day, he would go into the kitchen when no one else was around, and Michelle kept a calendar on the refrigerator of all our activities, and Dad would page through it. Now, I'm pretty sure that one time he found out that Michelle was pregnant because there was an OBGYN appointment on the calendar, um, but he held that, thankfully. And then sometime during this same visit, and again, not making this stuff up when I tell stories, my dad would find this, which is my checkbook. Somewhere in the house, didn't matter where I put it, my dad would find it, and he would go through it. So why did my dad creep around in this way? First, he's incredibly nosy, and he has some control issues. And the apple does not fall far from the tree. Second, if you don't see someone on a regular basis, what better way is there to find out what's going on in their life by looking through their checkbook and looking at their calendar? How we're spending our money and how we're spending our time. So fast forward 35 years, and let's say I put my last bank statement up on the screen behind me. What would you learn about me? If you're here this morning and you've professed faith 
in Jesus Christ, then he calls on us to use our money and our time in a way that brings him glory and advances his kingdom. God desires that we use our finances and our time and he desire in, in certain ways and he de- desires to be a significant part of what that is. We need to look at our bank accounts and our calendars and figure that out. So we're going to do that. We're going to talk about that this morning. I'm not going to put my bank account behind you. But we're going to take a closer look at what it means to have a disciplined life surrounding giving. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you this morning at the end of another week and we pray for your guidance and your direction as I seek and try to Speak your words on this topic, Father God, which seemed so broad as you try to put a message together. I pray that I would speak clearly to the needs of the body and and your desires and your commands, Father. And I pray that if I say anything that's wrong, that people would search the scriptures and find the answers for themselves, Father God, and correct me. I thank you for this opportunity, Father. It is such a blessing to be in front of my church family Anytime I have the opportunity and you are such a glorious God to provide it. Amen. So we've been spending a few weeks talking about spiritual disciplines. And Pastor Bruce has messages out there on the spiritual discipline of discipleship, um, fasting, uh, and evangelism. Uh, They're on YouTube, the YouTube channel. If you don't know where that is or what that is, we do have a City on the Hill YouTube channel. Dan, I think, not only condenses the service, or not only uploads the service, but he also provides just the message so you can have access to either one. Um, but as I was preparing this week, I realized that I, I needed a, fresh, a refresher on what spiritual disciplines were. I needed to kind of dig into a definition of what that is. So I did a quick, re- I'm going to do a quick reset on that. So forgive me if Bruce has gone through that. Um, but uh, In 1991, there was a guy named Don Whitney who wrote a book um, very creatively titled Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Um, Dr. Whitney's probably from Minnesota with that level of creativity. But he revised this book in 2014, so a few years ago. And when he revised his book, he came came to the Twin Cities and spoke. um, And I actually saw him speak. He's an interesting guy. The book is, is really good. Uh, But he describes spiritual disciplines as practices or habits that promote spiritual growth. And and Pastor Bruce has taken that definition and expanded on it by saying they're disciplines that are Christ-focused or biblically-centered, both of which are true. Uh, So a few more thoughts on disciplines before we jump into the meat of the message. I want to be clear, disciplines are things that we do. They're, they're not attitudes, they're things that we do, and that's an important distinction. Doing or developing a habit leads to a good attitude often, or leads to loving, but sometimes you got to do it and you got to grind at it a little bit to make it a habit. So spiritual disciplines are things that are biblical, Christ-centered, and very traditional in, in the church. They've been around for a long time. They've been practiced in this way for a long time. So there's proof in people of how becoming more disciplined helps us grow closer, closer to Christ. And the last thing I want to add is we have to stay disciplined. And if we do, the activities become habits and the habits bring us closer to Jesus. We grow 
in his likeness. In, in biblical terms, we are more sanctified. So making the discipline into a habit is the key. So staying motivated until we make it that habit is the hard part. Not surprisingly, the Bible gives us some, some, some uh, ideas on what our motivation should be. And the first one that I have is 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 to 8. This is where it's very specific about what our motivation is behind disciplining ourselves. Out of the ESV, it says train. Other versions use, actually use discipline in that verse. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Training or disciplining ourselves for godliness is no different than an athlete training him or herself for a competition. That's what Paul's saying in these verses. In fact, the word at the very beginning of these verses, training or discipline, comes from the Greek word that literally means gymnasium or gym. It's gymnazo. We must train our minds and our bodies to be more godly as athletes train their minds and bodies for competition. Um, I, I, I used to be. I used to have this rule that my my kids put on me that I couldn't use them in sermons. That's gone. That's gone. So I'm going to use my daughter. I, I'm going to use. I already used my daughter. I'm going to use a different daughter. You. Some of you have seen my daughter in here uh, with a very big dude. That's her husband. They are CrossFit people, um, and my daughter's actually a very high level CrossFit athlete. Um, she moved over to CrossFit because she was very strong. She's always been incredibly strong. But when she moved over to CrossFit three or four years ago, she knew nothing about gymnastics. So for the last three or four years, she spends three to four hours a day and, and works. She spends three to four hours a day learning how to do the basic gymnastic stuff because she wants to be better at CrossFit. She wants to be a higher level comp com competitor. That's what this is. It's the same thing. The Greek word gym or gymnazo talks about the hard work an athlete does training. And in this case, they're training for the ancient Olympic Games. That's what Paul's referencing. Training this way is hard. And if we don't understand why we're doing it, it becomes drudgery. There, there are times where I, she, again, using that same daughter, there are times where it becomes drudgery because she forgets her why. That's what she calls it. And, and Paul is giving us our why in 1 Timothy 4. If we claim Christ, we discipline ourselves so that we grow in godliness. If we develop gospel habits with the goal of becoming more like Christ, our faith grows exponentially. And we have benefits in this life, look at verse 8, this life and the life to come. So our purpose is simple. If we believe Christ died for us, and we truly believe that his spirit is within us, then our purpose in disciplining ourselves is to live like Christ. Represent Christ and advance his kingdom. Paul goes a little further in the other verse that's up on the screen, Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we discipline our, li- our bodies, our minds for godliness so that we present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. I, I love Romans 12, verse 1. Our minds and bodies are presented to God. Try this if you need a pat on the back or a spiritual kick in the pants. Write Romans 12.1 on a post-it or a piece of paper. Stick it somewhere near your bed. And at the end of the day, pick it up, read it, and ask yourself two questions. How was my spiritual worship today? And the second one, did I affect others for God? Or did others affect me for the world? If we discipline ourselves to godliness, like it says in verse 2, we begin to be transformed by the Holy Spirit working in us and with us. And if godliness is good and acceptable and perfect, as Paul says in Romans 12, then the world is bad, unacceptable, and flawed. And it takes effort. It takes discipline if you're out in the world not to get sucked into that. So if you're truly trying to become like Christ, the times you mess up can generally be traced back to a lack of discipline. Um, I, I ask you to look in your, in your own lives at something that you've messed up in the past week. Just think about it. And you can probably trace it back to that that day you didn't pray that day you didn't study God's word. That day uh, you, you just weren't on. That's a lack of discipline. I want to focus on two areas this morning where most of us need more discipline. And that's in the use of money and the use of our time. So we're going to talk about the spiritual uh, discipline of giving. Again, it's a very broad topic and the, the most difficult thing about this sermon was to pare it down into uh, 35 minutes or however long I'm supposed to talk. Um, <laughs> less than Bruce. Um, so, uh, and to, But giving, it, whether it's of our time and money, is absolutely centric to the church. It's an important part of Christ-centered living. So at its very core, this sermon is about money. So, and, and there's a question I want to ask before I get to it. Are you familiar with the term pucker meter? Pucker meter is a scale of 1 to 10, and that's where a muscle called the sphincter, that's how much it tenses up when, you, when somebody's talking to you about a topic that you don't like. So this sermon is about an 8, because I'm talking about money. If my dad were still alive, I guarantee you he would not watch this one on YouTube. So before we get into the discipline of giving, let's talk about the theology behind it. So the theology is steeped in the reality of the sovereignty of God. So I've got 1 Chronicles 29 verses 11 to 12, the beginning of verse 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven And in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honors come from you, 
and you rule over all. Every breath I take, every day that I wake up, every pain that causes me ache, and every dollar that I make belongs to God. God's ownership of everything under creation should change your attitude of all this. God is king and we are his stewards. I'm, I'm listening to this podcast once in a while that my son called, told me about called The Bible Project. If you're a podcast listener, it's a great podcast. But in that podcast, the pastor who does some of the talking says that we're middle managers. We're stewards of what God says. And think about the concept of what that means. A few years ago, I, I, on the, at the Super Bowl, Monster.com, which I don't even know if that exists anymore. Does that still exist? Monster.com used to be a place where you posted your resume and they post jobs to it. But Monster.com ran this ad where all these kids said these cute little things about jobs and things, and you were supposed to go to Monster because they were so much better. They're not in business anymore. That tells you something. Um, but one of the one of the kids was this pained little kid, and he said, "I I want to claw my made I want to claw my way to middle management." Um, it's really funny if you pull it up on YouTube, but that's what we are. We're stewards. We're God's middle managers. So God is the sovereign ruler of everything here. That means we're not in control. If God provides us with time and gives us money and blesses us, we are called to use it for His glory. And thankfully, I, I could come up with at least three really broad guidelines of how we're supposed to do that. You can come up with more than this. But to me, these are three, three practices or three things that are central to this message. So the first, for the first principle, we're going to go back to Genesis. And God introduced the practice of giving very early on after they leave the garden. It's in Genesis 4, verses 3 to 5. Let me read it. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So that's our, our first thing I want to talk about, the theology behind giving. God has standards, and they're quality standards. Some of when, you, when I dig into these verses, some of this stuff is a little frightening, frankly. Sometimes it's a little scary to, to think about this and try to project it forward to our time. We, we see in Genesis 4 that God's generous. He's, these are the sons of Adam and Eve. They're out of the garden, but God is blessing them. He's giving to Cain, who's apparently a farmer. He's giving to Abel, who's a rancher or a herdsman, however we want to term that. And in thanksgiving for the blessings, Adam and Eve have taught them to give back to God. So Abel brings God his firstborn and the best of his flock because he believed that's what he should give to God. Cain apparently goes through the motions and gives something that doesn't measure up to God's standards. If you're familiar with this, Cain killed Abel over this incident. So what's wrong with Cain's offering? Well, it's not exactly clear. Most commentators believe that Cain gave God his leftovers. And how many of us give God our leftovers? Sometimes we treat God like 
Judge Smales in the movie Caddyshack treated Danny Noonan, where at the end of his golf round, he squeezed a quarter into his hand and said, there's a little bit for your trouble. By giving God the first fruits, Abel acknowledged that all good things come from God and that everything belonged to God. Through his giving, Abel expresses his faith in God's provision and his thankfulness for God's blessing. Life was good, except for the whole murder thing. Now you might be thinking, how do these verses apply to our time? And my answer is nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. God asks that we think of him first in our giving and we give him our best. There's a practical example that's only recently, the last decade or so, available that makes this way easier than it used to be. It's called electronic funds transfer. If you get paid on a Friday, you can set up an electric funds transfer that transfers out your giving that day. So it's your first fruits. There are probably some people in here that do that. And, and that's great. Um, that is the way it's supposed to work because I can tell you there's been times where I've written a check and, I, and something's gone wrong and I haven't put it in the plate. Not, not recently, usually when the kids were around. Um, there were more financial emergencies then. Um, that's one way to give God your first fruits. It, the principle goes beyond just money. Uh, it also goes to our time. Do we give God our best time? Do we make time with God a priority in his life? Ask yourself, what's the first thing you reach for when you wake up? Who gets your first thought? And I'm not a morning person. I'm, I'm asking this from a, from a place of someone that's not a morning person. But who gets your first thought? God asked for the first fruits of our time and money. He asked for it from his people in Genesis 4. He asked for it now. So let me go ahead, 10 chapters in Genesis, and introduce our second principle. Again, a regular pastor would not use a mysterious verse, but I'm not a regular pastor. Uh, Genesis 14, verse 18 to 25. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So the second principle is God provides the tithe as a standard for proportional giving. And I'll explain. You'll see why I use the word proportional in, in a few minutes. Um, so Genesis 14, I believe, is the first mention of the tithe in the Bible, which is why I chose this. No word in church history raises the pucker meter like the word tithe. What does it mean? It simply means one-tenth or ten percent. That's all it means at the core. There's a lot of confusion around it because in the Old Testament it got used for a lot of different things. But at the core, tithe means 10%. So Abram presents a tithe, 10% in an offering to Melchizedek. They're celebrating the fact that they've rescued Abram's nephew, Lot, from, from danger. 
By the way, have you ever really thought about Lot in the Bible that it seems like wherever he is, bad things are happening? It, when, there, when I was growing up, there was, a, there was a show called Murder, She Wrote on for, you know, eight or ten years. And it was a woman who lived in a small town and every week there was a murder. At some point, someone in that town should have probably said, that woman might be doing the murdering. That's a little like when Lot shows up in the Bible. It's never good. Never good. So Abram presents a tithe to Melchizedek. And if you're familiar with the story, this is the mysterious part. Melchizedek is either Christ in pre-incarnate form or he represents Christ. Um, and there's more, as you, as you go through the Bible, you get that from the other time Melchizedek reappears, including in the New Testament in uh, Hebrews 7. But these verses birth essentially the principle of tithing, giving 10% to God. And throughout the Old Testament, it became part of Mosaic law. It became, it became a thing for the Israelites to do, and they never did it right. And they never followed it. Um, so Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law. And a lot of people say, I don't have to tithe anymore. But during that fulfillment, he never explicitly said, don't tithe. And he never explicitly said, do tithe. So you've got this kind of thing going on with Jesus. And so we're left trying to figure out to some extent what we're supposed to do. And most people go to 2 Corinthians 16 verse 2 which is the only part where Paul talks about how much or proportionally we're supposed to give. And he says this, On the first day of every week, each of you should put something aside and store it up as you may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul says it should be done regularly on the first day of the week, not occasionally and haphazardly. I grew up in a Lutheran church where they published um, they published what everyone gave in a book at the end of the year. I don't know who grew up in a Lutheran church, but you, oh boy, did that thing get read in my house. <laughs> it was second only to my checkbook. Um, but so we published that, and it was only when I got much older that I found out that a lot of people who had money in the church would just give a big check at Christmas, and then they'd show up as the biggest givers. So Paul's saying, that's not right either. Not haphazardly. Do it regularly. Set it aside regularly. And that brings into the consideration that sometimes the poor have less to give because they have more living expenses. Sometimes the rich have more to give. Um, but in the course of preparing the sermon this week, one of the many sad statistics I learned was that the people most likely to tithe within a church are those that make less than $20,000 a year. And the people that make more than 75% or make more than $75,000 a year, 1% of them tithe. So it, it's not playing out the way Paul designed it. The amount given in Paul's writing never is as important as the attitude of the giver. That was more important to Paul. Paul wanted the, it, in fact, it worked both ways for Paul, which is really interesting. He wanted them to take the offering before he arrived so no one would be guilted into giving. He wanted them to give freely and he wanted them to give cheerfully, all of which is still true. But discipline is not about feelings. This is where it gets a little different. That's not necessarily, Paul's not necessarily saying you don't have to tithe. 
he's just not giving a percentage or, or an amount. He said the amount should be in proportion to God, how God has prospered you in your life. So if you're not tithing, don't lean on these verses as your proof. Because if you read the entirety of what Paul says about money, the reason he doesn't teach the tithe is because he's worried it will limit people. In other words, the, the, the tithe, although he never said it, so I'm not saying Paul said it, but the tithe appears to be Paul's low bar. I believe that to be true. Now, I'm not, I can't take that to a scripture and, and prove it to you. You need to figure that out. I think the tithe is the biblical minimum goal for giving. So if you need a target or you need a goal, which some of us do, um, and frankly, you give more when you have a goal. But if you need one, set the tithe as your goal. Doesn't mean you have to make it, just set it there. Just set it and try over the next years to get there. And again, I, I speak to you from a different place than some of you are at because we're empty nesters and frankly, I, we have more uh, money to do as we please than we've ever had in our lives because the kids are gone, not because I'm making a lot of money. <laughs> um, one more point. What about giving your time? I, I don't want to leave that. Years ago, I did a sermon that I completely forgot about, frankly, almost uh, 15 years ago, and I recently in my job met with someone who heard that sermon. Um, and in that sermon, I said, you should tithe your time. And he remembered that. He said it kind of changed how he looked at things. Now, again, there's no biblical precedent for this. It just makes sense to me. If we're to give 10% of our money, why shouldn't we give 10% of our time? By the way, that's 16.8 hours. <laughs> 16 hours and 48 minutes. Yes, I'm a math geek. Um, that should Maybe that's our target. In study, in prayer, although don't ever get in the habit of timing your prayer. It's really stupid. I've done it. Um, or service to God. Total them up. See where you are. Are you tithing your time? So let me move to the third principle. It's represented, or best represented, I think. Hey, I'm doing pretty good at that. Um, just patting myself on the back here while I preach. Um, it's best represented in Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus, says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the third principle is God gives us opportunities to go beyond the tithe. Now I would tell you this verse supports what I think about the tithe. But again, it doesn't outright say that. It, it doesn't say that. It is, I think maybe, although this appears in all three of the four Gospels, this might be the only time Jesus uses the word tithe. But don't quote me on that. 
So there's a twofold reason why I use this. First, it, it, that's the first reason. And secondly, there's this principle that comes in in the New Testament that is really the biggest sin that the, the Israelites committed in the Old Testament. There's this principle of it, it's not just a perfunctory thing to give. It, it, it should, you should be willing to give for people in your family or in your community or people you encounter on the street who need things. Um, you should be willing to meet that in a gospel-centered way. So he pays a backhanded compliment to these Pharisees and the scribes who were so proud of the fact that they tithe. Um, but he also says, you tithe, but you let injustice happen right in front of you. It, it's, it's like this. Let, let's say I'm a Pharisee, which some of you are thinking is not much of a stretch right now, and my father has died and my mom is homeless and hungry. What Jesus is saying is, I can't use the excuse that I tithe as the reason why I won't help my mom. In this case, he would criticize me by saying, you need to step forward and help, even if you have to sacrifice to do that, even if you have to borrow to do that. And in this age, this day and age where credit cards are given away by like water and, and we can pay them back, we should be doing more. I should be doing more. Um, sometimes you got to sacrifice when things are important to you or important to what you want for your family. There were times when our kids were at home um, where we could have used a second income uh, and it, we just felt very strongly about it. And instead of Michelle going to work, I took a second job. I didn't want to take a second job. But that's what I had to do. Sometimes you got to do that. Sometimes you got to do it for gospel reasons. That's what these verses are saying. So if something else is going on in my life or I'm, I'm encountering people in my life that are in need, I get to figure out a way to meet that need. And, and there are situations, times where you just can't. I, I understand that. Um, but there are lots of times where we can this is our family in this room. So if there are needs within this body, other people within the body should know about them and be sacrificing to meet them. That's what was going on in the church in Acts. If you remember in, in Acts verses 2, 44 to 45, there's this, these, these verses. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You know, when you read all the tweets about socialism being bad, that's pretty close to what socialism is. Within this body, within the church, local, with other believers, we're supposed to share even if we sell things to make that happen. The people who had more gave more. That's as simple as it was. And if we're in Christ, the worldly possessions don't matter. And if there's a need in our family or in the church, we've got to be willing to advance the kingdom through our giving, to extend grace through our giving. That's what you're doing. You're pouring grace out sometimes through a check or through cash. 
it's not just a New Testament concept. It predates everything. You can go back in Deuteronomy either 14 or 15 and find the concept that there shouldn't be any poor people in Israel. The reason there shouldn't have been any poor people in Israel is because they should have gone beyond the tithe to provide for them. That's the same thing that should go on here. If we belong to Christ, we must be willing to give our money, our stuff, to others in their time of need. If we give to people in need in the form of a loan or in the form of a check or in the form of cash or in the form of a grocery bag of food, we're extending God's grace through our giving. Um, those are the three broad principles for giving based largely, foundationally on God's sovereignty. That's what's at the core of all of this. So how do you put this into practice? How do you become more disciplined? And there, not that I'm, I, I'm Mr. List this morning, <laughs> I came up with four things um, that, that I think are good ideas for any of us in here to do, including myself. And the first one is uh, set a goal. Whoops, now I am being Bruce. There we go. Set a realistic goal and get started. So, so how do you do that? Take the last six months of your expenses, write them down, download them into a spreadsheet if you're able to do that, and figure out if you're overspending in any area. That's part of it. Part of this is overspending. And at the same time, start keeping a log of what you do during the day. Because we get, we're so busy, we get going, we don't always think of where we're spending money, we don't always think of where we're spending time, so track it for a while and figure out what you're doing. I'm not telling you to give up having fun. Part of what God desires us to do is to find joy and fun in his creation, and trust me, I have a lot of fun in my life, and, and I believe that's God-ordained. So I'm not telling you to do that. I am telling you that general, as a general rule, broad statement, we all overspend somewhere. Um, we've all got our sacred cows. We all spend, some of us spend too much money on our kids or our pets or our activities or our clothes or our cars. Or if you, I, I will tell you um, when I, I, a lot of you know that I, I started working as a consultant about nine months and that required paring down your expenses to try to figure out where we could, where we could uh, scrimp and save. And I, I keep an eye on this, but I was surprised when I added up how much my phone, the internet, and all, the, all of that stuff cost. And then I considered how, and again, this is not bragging, but it's, I, Michelle and I just don't watch TV a lot. So why, why were we spending a lot of money on that? It, it made no sense. Um, so that was an easy place for, for us to find more money. But look specifically at how you spend it. That's the start. And then set a goal. If you're giving 1%, set a goal for 2%. If you're getting 10%, set a goal for 11%. The second thing, and this is something that I didn't even think about until I was preparing this sermon, I'm old. I still write checks. But... I think the, the automatic transfer thing is way more biblical. It's way easier. I, you know, and so I'm going to do that. 
I think I'm going to do that if we can do that. Can we do that, Gene? Okay, good. Um, um, it's, just, it's just way easier. Um, it's a little more complicated because I don't get paid like every two weeks, but we'll, I'll figure it out. Um, third thing, do the same thing with your time. Set up an appointed time where you spend time with God, preferably in the morning. I know that's hard for some of us. Biblically, though, uh, I did a quick search yesterday for how many verses are talking about being with God in the morning. There's quite a few of them. Um, that, and why is that? It's a first fruits thing, I think. It's hard when you got kids that get up at 6 a.m., but you might want to set your alarm for 5.45 and spend five minutes to yourself and with God. If you're not a morning person, set the time later in the day and just do a quick prayer or a quick thought in the morning before you get distracted. I'm busy in my current job and very distracted right now trying to figure this all out with how I do my schedule. And I, I, and I, this is probably a couple weeks ago, so I'm sharing this again because some of you probably know this, but I was looking at my calendar that pops up on my phone and I was like, hey, I can just have a pop-up a couple of times a day. So I set a pop-up that comes up at 10.30 that says praise God and a pop-up that comes up at 2.30 that says pray for one thing. They pop up on my phone. It, it forces me to think about God. So, last thing. Pledge or think of ways to extend grace by giving time or money beyond what you normally give. Look for maybe, and again, these are suggestions. Look for one time a month. This one's a little stress-producing for those of you that are a little introverted or maybe those of us that don't like necessarily talking explicitly about your faith. That's a whole other sermon. Um, in fact, I think that probably was the sermon a couple weeks ago in evangelism. But um, in order for this to be gospel-centered, you've got to say why you're doing it. And why you're doing it can be as simple as this. A couple of years ago, and again, trust me, I am not that great at this. I'm using examples from my own life not to shine myself in a great light because I have lots of examples to shine myself in a poor light. I'm just giving you ideas and sharing things that have worked. A couple of years ago, I walked into the break room um, where I was working. I had a job then. And, and uh, there were two women that I worked with in the break room, and one of them was crying. Um, and being the fact that, I guess, the apple didn't far, fall far from the tree, I eavesdropped on their conversation. Um, my dad would have been proud. Uh, and I learned that, basically, she had just separated from her husband, didn't have a lot of money, and her son had been in the Cub Scouts for years, and she couldn't afford it. And she needed $100. So the next morning, I, I got a $100 bill. I put a post-it note on it that says, God has blessed me. I am blessing you. I left it for her. She came into my office crying and said, I'll pay you back. And I said, I don't care if you pay me back or not. <laughs> did that do any good? I, I don't know. I don't know if it did any good or not. I will tell you that in that moment, I felt very close to, to God, to what I'm supposed to be doing, much more so than maybe that, that check that I write when I'm here every week. 
So there's truth in this. See, I, I will give you that sermons on money and giving are difficult. And you might be sitting there thinking, I'm, I'm free in Christ. I don't have to share. And, and I'm going to say something now that, you know, when I said difficult things, my kids would go, oh, dad's mad. Um, please grow up. Because you're called to share. Freedom in Christ is not free. I stole that line. <laughs> it's, freedom is not free. It should evoke a response from us in thanksgiving. We should share what we have. So in the course of preparing this message, I found a few statistics. I did not share them because, frankly, they're kind of depressing. I was going to do a screen of giving statistics, but I'm going to share two of them. I already shared one. 37% of regular church attenders give nothing to the local church. Zero. Zilch. Nada. And, and second, in 1932, in the midst of the Depression, the average Christian gave 3.3% of their income to the local church. In 2017, the average Christian gave 2.5% of their income to the local church. So, whether you give 20%, 10%, 5%, 0%, there's room for improvement. There's room for improvement in my life. I'm as convicted as anyone when I do a message like this. But the evidence points that the church is being conformed to the world. The church is not transforming the world. And the evidence is in the way the church uses money. I'm not talking necessarily about COA, but I don't know the finances. I don't know what happens individually. I'm talking about the church as a whole. We are free, but discipline is the price of that freedom. People who discipline themselves and learn to play a musical instrument become free to do things more difficult later in life. Athletes who train themselves and discipline themselves become free to be the best that they can be when it comes time for a competition. Let's train ourselves to be better at giving. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15, which is the midst of the two best chapters in the whole Bible on giving, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That's the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, and it, as, and it is truly indescribable. It's abundant. It's lavish. It's extravagant. We should give like God gives. Would you close with me in prayer? Father God, we give thanks for you and the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ who's for my sins and our sins died on the cross and makes it possible for someone like me, a sinner like me, to stand up here and give thanks to you for all you've done in my life. And I pray that each person in here could find the joy in giving that you command and that you advise and that you counsel and that you consistently put in front of us so that we can walk in it and become more like you and more like Christ, our Lord and Savior.
In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for more of our sermon series, we have two previous podcasts to check out. Finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes and Tomb Runners. For upcoming events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org. Paul Stiver will be here next week to continue the series, Participate in Christ.